people need to understand that we need to learn to use our technologies so that they maximize the things we really care about. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Robert Sessions. Robert is a native of South Dakota and earned a BA from Drake University and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Michigan. Before focusing on photography, for more than four decades he taught at Kirkwood Community College, Grinnell College, Luther College, and the University of Minnesota in Duluth. As a photographer, he works frequently with his wife, travel writer Lori Erickson. Together, they produce Spiritual Travels, a website describing holy sites around the world. Robert's most recent book is Becoming Real, Authenticity in an Age of Distractions. He has also published several dozen articles on environmental philosophy, the philosophy of work, ethics, and the philosophy of technology. Here's the interview. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. I'm glad to be here. Your book is called Becoming Real, Authenticity in an Age of Distractions, which we will get into in a little bit as we get deeper into it. But I'd like to start like we usually do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love, and the other is a bad wolf which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops, he thinks about it for a second, and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, Grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. 
Well, it's a wonderful traditional parable, uh, and I'm a firm believer that uh, one of the most important things about stories like this is that they contain truths that can't be captured entirely with discursive factual references. Uh, you know, they're sort of fathomless in the sense of being bottomless barrels of truth. Um, what does it mean to me? I've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about, reading about, and writing about uh, the development of the self. And I'm a firm believer that uh, while, yes, we have something to do with how we turn out and who we become, that I really take a more sociological or social philosophical perspective and believe that human beings are probably the most hyper-social creatures on the face of the planet, and uh, that we to a great extent, in our very being, our identities, our very selves, are social through and through. And so what that means for me, at least in part, is that if we want to uh, learn to feed the good wolf, we need to be embedded in really uh, the right kinds of, of social relationships, families and communities and so on, and that much of the bad wolf comes from bad culture, bad society, bad families, bad philosophies uh, that are far beyond our individual uh, capacities to do much shaping. Well, that's a great way to lead into your book. So it's, as I said earlier, it's called Becoming Real, Authenticity in an Age of Distractions. And you say, I'll just read this here, you say, what people desire is authenticity, a deep sense of being real. I believe that many people cannot attain this elusive quality of being because of the myriad distractions that keep them from a genuine quest and keep them looking in the wrong places. What leads you to believe that authenticity is the thing that we're after? I think that people have an innate uh, desire not just to be recognized, which I think is very, very strong, uh, but also to be the person that we might be. And you see this coming out in a thousand different ways. Certainly, the paradigm example is uh, teenagers uh, who, you know, rebel against uh, everything people say and they want to be their own person and so on. I mean, it, it's just a very, very strong uh, desire that people have. And so then uh, I, I came at it in my book from kind of the downside. Uh, well, what prevents this from happening to the extent that uh, people want it to? And how do people get lost? There are many, many people who, for example, have midlife crises. And uh, I don't like that word crisis because I think often uh, experiences of difficulties can be great opportunities for growth and development and discovery. Uh, but the reason people have that, I think, often is because they've been pursuing someone else's version of themselves, someone else's dream for them stereotypical example, but I think it's a powerful one, and uh, unfortunately, in our culture, uh, is that people get convinced that to be the person who is going to be recognized for themselves and uh, viewed as authentic, the way to do that is through material possessions. I mean, that's the major drumbeat uh, in our culture. Mm -hmm. If you only get enough money, you're going to get recognized and famous and so on. And of course, legions of stories of people who finally realize that doesn't do it, no matter how much you have. So one of the things about the book that you talk a lot about is I think when we think about authenticity, we tend to think of that as being a uniqueness that is inside of us. It has something to do mm -hmm. with finding ourselves. 
And mm -hmm. you say that being authentic has as much to do with what occurs in the world around us as it does with what we experience internal to ourselves. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, again, that's, that's very complicated, uh, but I'll try to say it straightforwardly. The selves that we become have, again, a huge amount to do with the models around us. Uh, that's why having good mentors, uh, good role models, and so on is so absolutely crucial. Uh, our sense of what our possibilities are have to do with uh, the stories we read, the people we experience, uh, the events that, that uh, we, we perceive. And so figuring out uh, who I am has a great deal to do with the world around me. One other aspect of this is what um, a social philosopher called the looking glass self. Uh, we, we see very little and dimly when we simply navel gaze, when we look inside. Mm -hmm. To a great extent, to really know uh, who I am, uh, how I'm coming across, what I'm like as a, as a human being, we need to see ourselves reflected in other people's responses to us. So even that very process of recognition and certainly the process of self-formation uh, is a relational phenomenon. You name three main distractions that you think get in the way of us being more authentic. Uh, work, technology, and nature. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about work for a minute. In what ways does the current culture and the way we approach work leave us feeling less real? Uh-huh. I actually wrote a couple of other books on this topic, so I have a lot to say about it. In fact, uh, people are interested. Uh, my major book on this is called Working in America. Uh, it's a humanities reader on work. And usually when people write about work, it's from the point of view of economics and uh, labor relations and so on. And mine is a, a humanities philosophical look at work. Um, work is something that people think we really don't want to do. I mean, think about the Monday morning syndrome. God, I just didn't have to go to work. I'm retired now, and what I'm seeing in my retired friends uh, is that uh, in a whole variety of ways, they have to find something to give meaning to their lives now that work is over. Mm -hmm. And so the problem, I don't think, is work per se. I think it's a variety of things about how we do work. It's about our work system. Yes, work is a way to produce products, uh, and it's a way to create wealth, uh, and I don't at all <laughs> diminish the importance of that. Um, but it's also uh, the context, or a major context, within which we discover and express ourselves. And if we don't have meaningful work, if we don't have ways to contribute to our own lives, but equally importantly, or more importantly, perhaps, to contribute to the lives of our communities, of our world, uh, then our ability to discover, to create, to develop and advance and mature in ourselves gets tremendously diminished. And so work, per se, is not the problem. It's how we do work, where we emphasize that what work is about is simply making a living. And again, I don't diminish the importance of that, but work is much more than that. And we don't really value those other aspects of work, except for a few people, for example, uh, creative artists. Uh, their work you know, is, is their products, but they are allowed, in fact, they're encouraged to develop themselves by doing their work. Very few other people do that. Uh, most jobs do not involve 
very much uh, self-discovery and, and, and so on. My son, my oldest son, who is a, a biochemical engineer, works for a wonderful company that encourages uh, the engineers, at least, uh, to make some long-term plans about where they want to be 5, 10, 15 years from now. And not so much in terms of money, uh, but in terms of keeping them uh, interested in what they're doing, keeping them creative. And they realize that uh, if if people aren't developing and having the opportunity to really uh, be creative and, and express themselves, their capacity to do the kind of work that, that they're doing becomes very, very compromised. So again, we're talking about a bigger cultural issue here, mm-hmm. the, the way mm-hmm. that the culture values work that people do. How can those of us that are working find ways to make our own work that we're doing, whatever that is, more meaningful mm-hmm. to us so that, so that yeah. it, we don't fall into this trap that you're describing? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, certainly, uh, one of the things I, I, for example, taught at a community college for a quarter of a century, and one of the things that we had available to us was a union. And it's, it's not a closed shop union. It was an open shop union uh, in, in the sense that people didn't have to join. But we in the union encouraged the development not just of good salaries and, and benefits and so on, but of working conditions, uh, not just in terms of safety and so on, but uh, that really provided opportunities for the faculty, uh, in this case, to to develop their art, to uh, explore, to uh, go to uh, conferences, to take time off and do writing, and, and so on. Uh, and so part of my answer, again, is that you know we're, we're social beings, and we depend heavily for our very beings on uh, our, our social context. So one of the main things I'd, I'd recommend for people to make work better is to work with their fellow employees, not necessarily to create unions, but to create uh, copacetic uh, working conditions where uh, everyone is fed, uh, where everyone has the opportunity to be creative, to explore, to do things differently. And I'm convinced that this can happen in, if you will, the, the lowliest of, of occupations. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, handyman work, a lot of uh, painting and house building and so on. And uh, I've seen I've seen it done poorly, where people are just assigned. They don't have any responsibility except to you know, hammer the nails in the right place. And uh, on the other hand, I've seen people who uh, really do some wonderful things as carpenters and painters and so on because they're given recognition for the importance of uh, this, this uh, you know, the creativity and exploration that I'm talking about. I've seen it a lot of different places. I think it can happen in restaurants. Or an example is uh, the difference between working at Walmart and working at Costco. Both working big box uh, chain stores, the morale in Costco is huge, not just because they pay twice as much as, as Walmart does and have benefits, but because they really encourage people to participate in creating better products and better displays and uh, new lines of, of products and so on.
The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. Another of the things that you talk about, and I thought this was really interesting because when we think about going off the wrong, you know, going down the wrong path, we tend to think mm-hmm. of it as these really perilous things that happen, these mm-hmm. big things. But you talk about mm-hmm. how most of us in America stray from developing and becoming ourselves because of what seem like pretty benign distractions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my example in the technology uh, chapter, uh, university plays to that. I mean, think about the much commented upon uh, phenomenon of people socializing, walking down the street or sitting in restaurants or whatever on their phones. They're not with the people they're with. They're not uh, living in in the moment and so on. That's a very small kind of thing, but there's a kind of accretion to it. Uh, It it adds up. uh, It despoils significant relationships, but it also creates in people a set of mental habits. It's kind of like a drug. They need that fix of constant distraction. And we all know that uh, if if you really want to be clear on who you are and do something significant with your life, you've got to be able to focus and concentrate and and be fully in the moment. And picking up those habits that we do from our technologies uh, can lead us to feel like, okay, all that matters is like the proverbial pigeon poking at uh, the feed trough uh, in the pen, uh, you know, constantly Mm -hmm. wanting another sunflower. 
And it looks like that uh, too often. And I, I don't want to just pick on, on phones. Here I am talking on one. I think they're tremendous technologies. But people need to understand that we need to learn to use our technologies so that they maximize the things we really care about. Mm-hmm. If I could just go one one more step in this line, uh, there's, there's a wonderful book out now that's a bestseller and lots of people are reading it. It's really a very simple idea, the uh, book on tidying up mm-hmm. uh, by a Japanese-American woman. Uh, and what she basically is saying is that everything in our lives, everything in our lives, should be something that really brings us meaning. And if we don't get that from something, then we need to get it out of our lives, but do it in a kind of ceremonial way. That is, to pay homage to whatever it is, an item of clothing or a plate or whatever, uh, and say, well, you served me well, and I want to put you somewhere where someone who really will find you meaningful can have me. And that would help in a whole variety of ways. For one thing, it would clear up people's lives so they they aren't so tied to their stuff. It would also help people be much better materialists. Uh, You know, everybody talks about how Americans are too materialistic. Uh, In a different sense, I think people in America are way too little materialistic. That is, we really cared about the material world, we would take better care of it. But in our false materialism, uh, we end up despoiling the world, whether it's garbage or the way we treat the land or air, uh, you know, pick your favorite example. You talk a lot in the book about how nature is a really important and powerful way to bring us back to ourselves, to become more real, to become more authentic. What is it about nature that has that power? A lot of things about nature. Um, First of all, uh, one of the things that it's easy to forget, especially in this internet-laden world, this electronic-laden world, is that we are natural beings through and through. We're biological beings from dust to dust and, and so on. Secondly, that we are part of an ecosystem. This is not an abstraction. Uh, this is uh, one of the major concrete things about us. You know, if you read Kathleen Norris's book, Dakota, but if you read stories about people who live in different places uh, in the world, different climates and and, uh, geographies and so on, people really are different based on the world around them. Um, You know, that that world affects us in all kinds of profound ways. We also, uh, in our society, with our uh, tremendous, uh, you know, cultural artifacts, our our cities and buildings and so on, um, we have taken people away from experiences with the natural world. So the most people do is to watch a YouTube video, that cute, cuddly panda bear uh, the other day in the the snow, yeah. Playing in the snow, a wonderful video. My gracious, that's not an animal in the wild, and that's not an ecosystem that's intact. Uh, I mean, that's an indication that it's not intact. And so if we're not familiar with it, we don't love it. We don't understand it. We don't uh, value it. So much of the ecological crises that we have in our world have to do with that abstraction from the natural world. But my point of view is that we need the natural world for our very selves, for the lives of our, of our souls. There's that wonderful book about nature deficit disorder, children who you know don't have any encounter with nature. And uh, it isn't just that uh, kids aren't as healthy because they're not eating enough dirt and, and so on. 
or they don't their immune systems don't develop because they don't have often encounters with bacteria. Uh, but it's that um, much of of what we are as natural beings doesn't ever get uh, triggered and developed uh, as a result of this isolation that we have. One other way, of course, that's been much discussed that's so important, uh, if you study the biographies of the great spiritual people throughout human history, the major place where they go for their encounters with the holy is out into the desert, into the wilderness, into the mountains, you know, the famous hermit up in the cave and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, because what's what's there is a lack of human distractions, and it opens you up to a, a variety of things that are essential for uh, as I say, people's spiritual development and, and life. Um, for one thing, uh, you get perspective that, hey, my life is short. I'm only one being among many. I'm only one species among many. I'm part of this larger community. You know, it, it puts you in perspective and helps you realize that my life is not all about me. Uh, you know, that's another distraction and terrible a cultural message, I think, that we've gotten uh, in our society, and that's that your life is all about you. With regard to happiness, uh, if I can use that word uh, you know, as a way of describing the, the good wolf, I think a, a major ingredient is to learn to diminish the ego and to give it away. Not give the ego away, but give, uh, give your life away. Give yourself uh, to other people. And lo and behold, the more people you help in really genuine ways, uh, the happier you end up being. I mean, it's it's one of the most uh, remarkable phenomena that you can come across that people just don't realize. But if you look at every religious tradition, that's a major part of the formula uh, for happiness is to live unto others. I think the nature piece is the sort of thing that I natively would sort of think, well, I don't know about that. It just mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. It doesn't resonate with people, I think, who are a, a more sophisticated crowd. Or, But mm. uh, one of the great teachers of my life was a gentleman named Lou DeWine who founded a place called Niches, which was founded on that exact idea that basically um, it's lack of contact with nature mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is one of the things that, that makes us sick as a culture. And I wouldn't have believed it until I experienced it so well, but I found that to be so true. And I think even a little bit of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, because a lot of us live in areas where there's not a lot of nature around, but if we can find just small bits of it, even that is really helpful. I recently had the experience, it's not in the book, of uh, spending over an hour with a Rinpoche, uh, a holy man from Tibet, who's second in the world to the Dalai Lama in terms of his how revered he is. He's from Mongolia, but he was a captive in Tibetan China for uh first twenty five or thirty years of his life and tortured and so on. And the man was just so peaceful and just exuded this happiness, but he clearly had transcended the ego in, in so many ways. And yet he was very straightforward. He wasn't wasn't at all off putting uh, he was as welcoming as he could be, and he spent the time with us that felt good, and, and then we parted. But we, we were so privileged to spend that time with him and to realize that much of his spiritual depths had come from time that he spent 
uh, in nature meditating. One of the things that you talk about is that in our current world, mm-hmm. it's called the postmodern world right now, we have choices in mm-hmm. everything. Um, whether, I mean, whether it be the obvious things like, oh, I could buy 30 brands of cereal, mm-hmm. or more profound and fundamental things about like, who do I want to mm-hmm. marry and mm-hmm. where do I want to live and what kind of job do I want to have to do and what are my beliefs and, and, and what is important. And I think that we're in this place where those are all Mm -hmm. good things in some ways. But you make the point that there's two issues. One is living up to our values and our ideals and to our culture. And you say that, you know, that's always been a problem for human Mm -hmm. beings to live up to that. But that in, in earlier societies, the idea of having to figure out who you were wasn't there. All you had to do was work to live up to the culture to do that. You didn't have to figure out who you were on top of that. And that that's one of the challenges we as a modern society are wrestling Mm -hmm. with. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really important point. It's the underside of freedom. If you want to use that kind of language, it's wonderful to have choices and it's awful to have so many choices. (laughs) And you can think of all sorts of examples. Uh, Mm -hmm. One uh, social psychologist called this decidophobia. You're standing in front of a rack of toothpaste and say, oh, my God, which one am I going to choose? And we end up choosing the same one we chose last time just to get out of there. Uh, it feels oppressive rather than liberating. Mm-hmm. But as you say, this is true about every aspect of our lives. And I, I think the only way to traverse this gauntlet of choices uh, at every turn well is, uh, first of all, to have help, uh, You know, good parenting, good modeling, good friends. Uh, good teachers and and uh, uh, reading good stories. I, I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, you know, to really get your belly full of uh, the absolute best stories that are available. I think that's a major job of childhood, so that when it comes to making these decisions, uh, you've got some models. You know that this way of doing things that that such and such a character tried out isn't a good idea. And there it is right in front of you, a different version of it, but the same same dilemma and so on. Uh, and so I, I think that it takes a lot of, of training. Uh, whereas, as you said, uh, in the past, uh, you know, you, you didn't have any major choices about who you were going to be, what you're going to do in your life. You, know, you belong to a certain class. Your father was a miller, so you're going to be a miller. You're going to stay in the same village you were born into and so on. And, you know, that that can be oppressive, especially for certain kinds of personalities. But it also is a tremendous relief from all of these uh, pressures to make decisions. We put several children through college, and that whole process of choosing the college uh, is so crucial and so difficult uh, to a great extent because it involves knowing who you are. And of course, why you go to college to a great extent is to figure out who you are. Yep, <laughs> and we've, yep. we've known a number of people and it's very, very costly mistakes where it turned out, no, they thought that was the right choice. They went to 50 different schools and went on campus tours and so on and chose one. And by golly, that didn't work. And uh, the one that they should have chosen wasn't as fancy or as expensive or whatever. Uh, and so they end up with a year lost and you know, fifty thousand dollars of tuition. It can be very costly, and, and I'll multiply that of people choosing the wrong mate and uh, the wrong career. Uh, Twenty years later, they realize, oh no, I didn't want to be a jazz musician. I wanted to be a mathematician, uh, and so on.
I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge, and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified. They're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. You talk in your book a lot. You reference another book, which is one of my favorite books of all time, which is The Happiness Hypothesis Uh by Jonathan Haidt. And he talks about in that book, I don't think he came up with it, um, but this idea of a happiness formula. Mm -hmm. Could you share with us what that formula is? Yeah, well, hate. There's another book, by the way, that I'd highly recommend. Uh, Mathieu Ricard, uh, who is one of the great students of the Dalai Lama, who is uh, French, and his father is a French philosopher. And he goes off. I think he was a chemist student, and he went off after getting his PhD to Tibet, and came back 35 years later with this advanced ability. Um, he's got a book called Happiness that just has mm-hmm. great insight. So I'd highly recommend that. Happiness hypothesis, uh, you know, is complicated in some ways, but pretty straightforward in other ways. That happiness is, first of all, something that you can't get if you pursue it. Okay, it comes as a as an epiphenomenon, comes uh, along with doing something else, and that something else has to do with some of the things I've been talking about. Uh, you know, if if you're clear about who you are at a given point, and you're doing things from that identity, uh, you're acting from that identity, then you're going to be much happier than if what you're doing doesn't fit who you are. So that's one aspect, is, is self-discovery and self-expression you know, in your daily life, in your work, uh, in your personal life. Part of happiness comes from uh, having good relationships. Again, something I've been, been talking about if we don't have uh, mates or spouses or, or lovers who really fit us and understand us and can help us uh, discover ourselves and call us up short when we make mistakes and so on, uh, we're going to be less happy. Mm-hmm. A certain amount of wealth is important. And maybe that's the wrong word to use because people immediately think of being rich. No, I'm talking about having enough. What they've found is up to a certain point, so that you don't have to worry every day about, gee, where's the next meal going to come from, or where am I going to stay tonight because it's cold outside and so on. Uh, that increases your happiness. After a certain point, more wealth doesn't really improve your happiness much. In fact, it can be a real detriment to your happiness because achieving and maintaining that wealth and then maintaining all the stuff and the lifestyle and so on that go along with that can keep you away from doing things that are much more valuable to your happiness. Being rich is is not all it's cracked up to be. In fact, it's, uh, uh, it's contrary to, to well-being. There's a wonderful book by a woman who talks about her uh, work with Mother Teresa's foundation in 
India, and she had the job of going fundraising. And she would go to uh, wealthy people, uh, you know, executives and CEOs and people with millions and billions of dollars, and tell them uh, that their lives would be a lot richer and more meaningful and happy if they would give it away. And she said over and over again, she gives example after example of how that was the case. Mm-hmm. That people had, had thought hoarding and, and uh, you know having a big bank account was the way to go. That's a major uh, ingredient, again, uh, of, of letting yeah. go, giving it away. Yeah, in the book, I was struck by how both you and Jonathan Haidt kind of came to a very similar place. Him with happiness, mm-hmm. you with authenticity. Right. And I think it was that... What really struck me was with both of those things, the Western approach has very much been it's about me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an internal find yourself, go inside, self-discovery, all of that stuff. And what you both came to was a sense that it's not, you know, we say happiness is an inside job, which is such a cliche. Mm-hmm. And there's there's some truth in it. But where you both landed was that it's both. Yep. Happiness is both an inside job. We have to be doing things, working internally, and it's what's happening in the world around us. It's the people around us, it's the life we've constructed, the conditions we have. And you yeah. kind of landed in the same place with authenticity. Yeah. Part of it is who we are internally and not being distracted by all these distractions. And part of it is the culture, the circumstances, the people that we're around. Mm-hmm. I've uh, landed again in Christianity. I was was not for a while, and I've explored a lot of different religious traditions. But one of the things that I want to say about Christianity is I've discovered how incredibly countercultural Christianity is. It's not about wealth. It's not about individual salvation as much as it's about uh, relationships. You know, God is love. <laughs> uh, you know, if if you really get it. Uh, it happens because of uh, opening your heart and loving relationships. It's relational. Mm-hmm. And like I say, that's very countercultural. That's not all about me. It's all about us. Right. I think that's one of the things that just comes up over and over and over again on the show that has struck me mm-hmm. that I don't think I was as aware of before we started doing mm-hmm. it was that second aspect. I was certainly aware of the meditative aspects mm-hmm. and the going inside mm-hmm. and the knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. But over and over and over, people we have on the show, very wise people, talk about this idea of relationship and other people and the culture and the people who are around. And, and I'm you know, more and more recognizing what a critical part of a good life that is. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate uh, your program that you're, that you're finding that because um, you know, the, the message is so much by a lot of uh, self-help gurus uh, that it's all about me and it's all about going in inside myself and so on. And like I say, that that's an important part of it, but it's it's only a small part of it. There should be and can be what I would call a good uh, creative tension mm-hmm. between, you know, being pulled towards um, internal focus and taking care of yourself and all those things, mm-hmm. and at the same time, um, giving to and being connected to the world outside. I think a good creative tension pulls you into the middle with that, where a lot of us tend to get to one extreme or the other. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the self-help that's out there, various programs, encourages to go one direction or the mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the ways that people come at this in much of the literature about work and so on is about work-life balance. And I think that's a less adequate way of talking about it, but I, I think it, uh, you know, it's getting at something similar. One of the things I wanted to mm-hmm. mention, I, I mentioned Christianity a minute ago. 
uh, I don't know how many people you've you've talked to have used this language, but I really do think what uh, you're after in this program uh, is a spiritual quest. Uh, this is really mm-hmm. a, a spiritual issue through and through. Uh, and I, I know it sounds kind of funny to use that language in talking about work and technology and uh, and, and so on, but it, it seems to me that that's at the heart of uh, why it is people end up with difficulties, losing their way, and so on. Uh, and one of the things that I like that using it as a spiritual quest is that spiritual quests, if you look at every tradition, are about getting lost uh, or about wandering on the way, to use the Taoist uh, uh, terminology, uh, about um, koans and, and uh, paradoxes and uh, you know, getting mired down in, of having to struggle and being challenged and so on. And I think that's that's a really really helpful lesson to people uh, who uh, think that this is all just about finding roses and uh, gee something's wrong if I'm having a difficulty. Uh, I would put it the other way around: uh, something's wrong if you're not having some difficulties. You know, the greatest atheists of all time have not been the armchair atheists that abound these days. It's people who are very very spiritual beings who have doubts mm-hmm. as they go because they're developing, they're discovering new uh, relationships to the holy and new understandings of, of the holy. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Well, I think that is a good place for us to wrap up. Okay. So thank you so much, Bob, for taking the time to come on. I really enjoyed the book. You cover a lot of ground from Eastern philosophy to Western existential philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's, there's there's a lot in it. I really enjoyed reading well, it. Good, so thank good. you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for finding it, and uh, I've enjoyed this too. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye. Okay. You can learn more about Robert Sessions and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash sessions.